0: You know, I don't know if you're aware of this. The guitar is the most biblical instrument. It's, it's uh, one of the only instruments that's actually mentioned that we still use. Um, and it's a shame we don't hear it more often. It is a beautiful instrument, and it's great. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Kit. Uh Matthew chapter 1. Maybe you've heard the little boy praying by his bedside, Lord, forgive us our Christmases. It's probably low hanging fruit to point out that most Americans, certainly much of the world, has rejected God, particularly at Christmas time. We know that's true. How terrible, though, that some Christians reject God at Christmas. I really almost cannot believe it, but it's true. It happens every time Christmas falls on a Sunday. There's discussion among pastors online about canceling church because it's Christmas Sunday. (laughs) So let me get this right. Christmas is a celebration about Jesus coming to earth in order to die because of our sins So that we can have new life in him. And we are going to celebrate that by not coming to church. Jesus is the head of the church. He died for the church. He rose again for the church. And we celebrate his resurrection on Sunday. Because he rose on a Sunday so let's consider canceling services. I read a post the last time this happened, back in the mid-2000s, some years ago. It was the last time we had a Sunday Christmas, and here was one pastor's reasoning for canceling his church services on Christmas Sunday. He said, number one, that their church normally cancels church the last Sunday of the year, so it's really not out of the ordinary. And I just had to stop and scratch my head. So let's just let's just cancel a Sunday just arbitrarily for no reason at all. And then he said we do have a Christmas Eve service, and that falls the night before, so that's something. And then he followed it up with his, his strongest argument. He says it's pro-family. Well, a mega church in Atlanta this year is having an online Sunday service with quote, a one-of-a-kind telling of the Christmas story movie for your family to watch from home. That's their Christmas Sunday service. On the flip side, I was surprised to see an Anglican church where the pastor posted an argument that Christians should celebrate Christmas on Sunday, particularly when Christmas falls on Sunday because he said, number one, it's Sunday. And number two, it's about Jesus, not your family. And number three, it turns out That when we do this, we turn Christmas into a civil holiday, not a holy day. He said people will still come to church. It's not pro-family to cancel church. And even if your volunteers are strapped with time, well, maybe that's just evidence that they need a break anyway. In other words, the problem isn't your volunteers. It's that they do too much already. No wonder the little boy prayed like he did. Friends, the celebration of the Lord's resurrection, which is a church tradition since the very beginning, the very beginning, holds a much greater weight than canceling church in order to spend time with your family, unwrapping presents you probably don't actually need and eating lots of food you probably shouldn't actually eat. And I think the real problem here is not a secular one. I mean... We can argue all day that the world has rejected God, but the world's rejected God since the beginning of the world. It's not a secular problem, folks. It's a Christian problem. It's our problem that for many believers, professed believers, they are rejecting God at Christmas, which is, I would say, an incredibly dangerous thing to do. So would you consider with me first that rejecting God's rule Results in sin-directed failure. That in the middle of this lineage, here we have Matthew giving the lineage of Jesus. He gives 14 generations and then 14 more and 14 more. It's actually 13, 14, and 13. But the way the Jewish counting is, it's okay to be 13 and say it's 14 because of the way they overlap. That's fine. In actuality, he skips kings in this section of the chronology of this lineage because it's okay to do that. That's kind of the way the Jews reckon as well. Begat doesn't mean father to son. It can mean grandfather and even great-grandfather to great-grandson. So here we have in this lineage, we see first how sin causes failure because sin, letter A, Turns us away from godliness. Look at verse 6 again. David the king. Then in your mind, just put a little connecting and there. The wife of Uriah. That doesn't belong together. Now David here, he's called the king. And this lineage is his kingly line. In fact, it's interesting. Did you notice? He's called the king. How many of the other men here are called kings? None of them they're all kings, and some of them are great kings. In fact, I, I was thinking David's not even necessarily the best king. And if you ask me who was the best king of Judah, I would say Hezekiah. Some others were good, Uzziah until his pride was a pretty good king. You have Josiah, who was a pretty good king, Hezekiah was a great king, it says of him, there was no king like him before or after he was just an incredibly. Godly man. David was a good king. He's called the king. He's the focal point of the attention of this lineage. He's the central person of the genealogy. And and we have here a connection from Jesus to David. And of course, the reason Matthew is including David here is because of the covenant that God made with with David in 2 Samuel 7, this important covenant uh, that David would have a lineage that would go on forever there would always be someone to sit on David's throne and so there's that focal point on David but you notice what Matthew does after calling him the king he connects David to who of all the people he could connect him to he connects him to the wife of another man he doesn't even mention her name the story is so sordid. it's so dark That Bathsheba is not even mentioned here, and can I tell you, I find this to be most interesting and a little discouraging. We name our boys David; we don't ever name our girls Bathsheba. I was in uh, New England visiting the place where uh, the Pilgrims landed, um, Plymouth Rock. You go up the hill. There's a a church there. It's very old, and uh, it's it's now completely apostatized. It's uh, it believes everything the Bible doesn't teach and doesn't believe anything that the Bible does teach just about. But you go into the cemetery there and you see the names on the gravestones and I came across a Bathsheba. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's the first one I've ever seen. Someone named Bathsheba. You you think of the story of David and Bathsheba and who's worse, David or Bathsheba? Well, the story really isn't about Bathsheba's sin, although she sins clearly. Stories about David's sin. And then I started thinking, why in our culture do we tend to blame her more than him? And then I thought, well, we kind of always do that, right? Especially with this particular sin. We always kind of tend, our culture kind of tends to blame the woman over the man. You you remember that when the Pharisees caught the woman in adultery, they didn't bring the man caught in adultery to Jesus. They brought the woman. And David's sin with Bathsheba, as great of a man as David was, is turning him away from godliness. You see what sin does? Let her be. it steals our good and replaces it with something bad. David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. He selfishly takes this woman for himself. It's interesting. Uriah, he's not even Jewish. Bathsheba's not even Jewish. He's a Hittite. Bathsheba is probably a Hittite. And the Hittites were the early enemies of the Jews. Not too many centuries earlier, in fact. Just a short time earlier, the Hittites were people who should have been driven out of the land. And yet here's Uriah. And he's one of David's mighty men. He's a man who loves David. And yet David abuses his friendship with Uriah. He takes Uriah's wife for himself. He has Uriah murdered on the battlefield. He does everything to cover up a pregnancy with Uriah's wife. The little boy dies. We know that story. Later, after he marries Bathsheba, Solomon comes along. But do you know what Solomon is in the story? For me, it's a reminder that even good people sin. Solomon... Because he's chosen to be the king who follows David. Because Solomon is the one who... There's another king in there. One of other David's sons tries to take the throne. And Solomon then becomes the king. But When Solomon becomes the king, forever in the story is placed this ugly picture of David sinning against God. And do you know, friends, do you realize then... That when you reject God's rule, it leads to failure. It leads to personal failure. And and if David had not sinned with Bathsheba against God, then maybe there's still a Solomon. Clearly there would have still been a king. But the story of Bathsheba would have never even made it into the Bible if there is no Solomon. Solomon then becomes a continual reminder that sin steals our good and replaces it with the bad. And so I I think it's important for us to realize here's a king who rejected his king. And when we sin against God, we are rejecting our king. What does Paul say in Romans? Do not let sin rule in your mortal bodies so that you will obey its desires. Don't let sin rule you. You have a ruler. That's God. You have a king. That's Jesus. And don't do like David and reject the rule of God. When you reject the rule of God, you will fail. It turns your life towards failure, not success. Let me tell you something. Teenagers, listen to me. Follow God, obey him, and your life will be successful in his eyes. It may not be successful in the world's eyes, but who's really keeping score here? One day you'll die. And who will those things be that you accumulated for yourself during life? But if you will follow God and you'll obey him, then he'll say at the end, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Obey the Lord. You don't have to pursue the things of life. You don't have to pursue the blessings of this life. There are many blessings of life. And if you go your own way, you can accumulate all of those things or many of them to yourself. But my friend, my listen, teens, listen to me carefully. If you do that, though, in God's eyes, you're a failure. Obey him. Mom and dad, God has a plan for parenting. Obey him. <laughs> the pull, because to 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 parent like the world parents their children is so strong the culture is so strong it's it's like being in a in a river and the current is just pulling you along it's so hard to parent your children according to God's word to make him number 1 in your family to put him first but if God is ruling over your family you'll do that and let me tell you something businessman Your life is not about making money first and foremost. Your life is not about being the best insurance salesman you can be, the best medical doctor you can be, the best attorney, the best IT guy. It's not about that. It's about following Jesus every day, every step along the pathway. And I, I think we should even say for all of you who are retired, retirement isn't your opportunity to do your own thing. Retirement is an opportunity to now to spend more time serving the Lord. How terrible it is that when, when children grow up and the children start leaving the home, all of a sudden the parents just wig out. And they just start living selfishly. It's, I, we went to church for the kids, but now the kids are grown and it's our time. That's not God ruling you. That's sin ruling you. Serve the Lord with those extra hours, with those extra minutes. Sin leads to failure. Not only does rejecting God's rule lead to failure, number two, it leaves you with a terrible testimony. Rejecting God's rule, number two, not letter two, number two, results in a sin-stained legacy. Because letter A, sin mars our testimony. Solomon begat Rehoboam. Do you see, friends, in this little section of the lineage, there is a progressive downward spiral going on in the kings. Now, sometimes you get a good, really good king in there, like I mentioned Hezekiah. But actually, what you have is a pretty good progression down. In fact, after Rehoboam, the nation splits into two parts. The ten northern tribes go their own way. And do you know what you have in those 10 northern tribes? One bad, wicked king after another. In fact, in the middle of Judah's uh, line of kings here, you have three kings that were born from the line of Ahab, the ruler of the northern king. And you have wicked queen Adaliah. And they're not even mentioned. God just overlooks them completely. They're so wicked. But what you see here from David's relationship with Bathsheba and then Solomon, you get this progression down and sin mars the testimony. You even see that progression in Solomon's own life. His early rule is marked by prayer and a commitment to God. His middle life is marked by worldliness. He writes, I pursued everything the world had to offer. I pursued Wealth like the world had never seen. And Solomon was probably the wealthiest man the world has ever seen. He pursued wealth. He said, it brought me no satisfaction. He pursued satisfaction in women, accumulating literally hundreds of women to himself. He found no satisfaction there. He even saw satisfaction in education, in learning. And he said, even as I learned the great philosophies around me, I had no satisfaction. His mark. His midlife was marked by worldliness. Just read Ecclesiastes. You find what Solomon says in midlife about himself. And his later life is marked by idolatry. His multiple marriages to pagans began the process where he then finally builds monuments and temples to idols, to false gods, to demons. Do do you realize how bad Solomon's legacy is? When, when scholars debate what Song of Solomon is about, right? There, there are basically two major theories. Song of Solomon, according to the dispensational view, Song of Solomon is about marriage. In fact, if you read Norman Geisler's uh, biblical theology, he says Genesis is about God. In fact, he might even say Jesus. Uh, Exodus, God or Jesus, and he goes through. It's Jesus, 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 all the way to Job, Jesus, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Jesus, 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 Song of Solomon, marriage, and then it's back to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you if you have a graph, you go, oops, which one of these is not like the other? And the dispensational view is that Song of Solomon is about marriage. Do you know why they hold that view? I'll just tell you. The reform view is that it's about actually about man's relationship to God. That's actually my position on Song of Solomon. When when he says he is altogether the lovely one, I I think that's a reference to Jesus Christ. That being said, do you know why this debate takes place? It's because Solomon is a terrible example for marriage. I mean, here you have a book written by Solomon. Stop and think about Solomon and marriage. There's the example we want. Hi, honey. Hey, listen, you know, I've been reading Song of Solomon in my devotions. Realize, hey, this guy's married to lots of women. Would you mind if I just kind of dated around? Would that be a problem for you? You know, if I survived the night. <laughs> his testimony is so destroyed by his sin that today scholars debate the meaning of his book because of that. And they'll say, well, actually, what we have in Song of Solomon is he wrote it earlier in his life. And, that, and that's how we get around that problem. Why is it a problem? Because sin is controlling him. It, it sets a negative example that others will follow. Is Rehoboam a good or bad king? Well, he's not a very good king, right? After Solomon dies, he, he decides he's going to rule with a harsh and angry rule worse than his father and he loses 10 of the kingdoms, 10 of the tribes, at, rather, of the kingdom. Rehoboam begats Abiah, and then you have Asa, and Asa's a pretty good king. And You get Jehoshaphat, he's, he's actually a really good king. You get kings like Uzziah, and, and you get Hezekiah, and they're pretty good. What about Manasseh? Is he a good king? He actually murders Isaiah, the prophet. What, what about uh, Ahaz? Is he a good king? Nope, he's a wicked king. What about Ammon? Is he a good king? Nope, he's a bad king. And I, I, while Rehoboam is not the worst of the kings, Solomon's line is a mixed bag of spiritual men and ungodly men. And so you have Uzziah and Jehoshaphat and Jotham and Hezekiah, and, and you have Josiah. You have ah- the Ahazes and the Manassas and the others that show that really you, the legacy of David and Solomon is not a legacy of godliness. It's a legacy of the good and the bad together. And Solomon's own life is that way, a mixed bag of good and bad. And this is what sin does, friends. It harms your testimony. You go off to work tomorrow and and the words that come out of your mouth indicate to the people around you, are you a follower of Jesus or not? When you begin to talk like the world, when you begin to use its words, its swear words, its profane words, you begin to reveal to everybody else, oh, I'm, I'm not really a Christian. I'm just like one of you. I know that peer pressure is hard to fight against, friends, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you ought to talk like. Sin harms your testimony. The things that you will share with other people. There's a writer out there. I won't mention his name. There's a writer. He's pretty popular. He just wrote, uh, he's a political writer, but he talks about Christian things. He he writes on Christianity and politics kind of together. It's all mixed in for him. And he's not a Christian nationalist. He's kind of like the opposite of that. But he writes on these things. And a couple of weeks ago, he wrote an article about repentance. And and it was very interesting because at the beginning of the article, he was kind of saying this. I'm not talking about Christian things, but by the end, he really was. By the end of the article, he was really talking about what repentance is like in Christianity. Now, I'll just stop and say about five or six years ago, this same man wrote an article on why the Game of Thrones is really not a bad television show. It's something Christians can watch, and somebody recommended it to him, and he started watching, and he said, you know, I I realize there's some really bad stuff in there, but it's, you know, you can get beyond He You just realize it's a really great story, and he started trying to justify actually Christians watching what what John Piper called violent pornography. And he said, it's okay. And do you know every time this man's name comes across my desk, His articles that I subscribe to, I I read him. But every time when he talks about Christian things, here's what I go. Don't listen to him because his article marred his testimony. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. This is what sin does. It it just harms how other people see you. I I was at a funeral many years ago. We We had a really sweet black lady here. I met her going door to door, downtown Cary, and she. When the day I met her, she said, oh, you're my angel. And I was going, what? Okay. I was her angel. She said, I was just praying for the Lord to send somebody by who could lead me to a church, and you knocked on my door. And i wonderful. Well, she came. She was a really sweet lady. She moved to New Jersey uh, before we even moved into this building. It was many years ago. Well, her husband was not a very nice man, and he died. And I went to his funeral to support this lady who was coming to our church at the time. And she was a sweet, really good Christian lady. but Her husband was just a rascal, a terrible guy. Nobody liked him. And what I watched was a whole bunch of people at a funeral, because is what you do at a funeral, try to say nice things about the guy. And basically the, nice thing, the nicest thing they could say about him was, he died. He's now dead. And I'm just going, what a terrible testimony. What a terrible legacy. And that's what happens. So how is your testimony? The people who know you best. do they know you to be godly or ungodly? If the people do the people follow your example, and if they do, what kind of person would they be? And not, not only does sin lead to failure and a bad testimony, but number three, finally rejecting God's rule results in a sin-dominated family. Our sin impacts those around us. Look at verse 11. Josiah begat Jeconias and his brothers, his brethren. Now, most Christians are not really aware of Jeconias. He's at the end of Second Chronicles. You have also Zedekiah there. Jeconias' story is a terrible one. Sometimes he's called Coniah or Jehoiachin. The Babylonians called him Yalkin. His sins were so great. This is what Jeremiah wrote of him. As I live, says the Lord, though Canaiah were the signet ring on my right hand, I would pluck you off. I will give you into the hands of those who seek your life. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And I will cast you out and your mother into another country. And there you will die. And Jeconiah is so bad that God actually curses him like a ring. He says, I take you off of my hand. This is called actually the Coniah curse. In fact, it's a really difficult one because he's here in the line of Christ as we have given in Matthew chapter 1. And what God is actually saying is that there will be no one of your family who will sit on the throne. And that curse is so terrible that people who read this story go, wait a minute. If nobody from his family can sit on the throne and Jesus is from his family, what are we supposed to do? And the Kaniah curse becomes a conundrum for scholars to try to figure out. Let me give you some of the answers they've come up with. Some people say, well, maybe the Kaniah curse is only on Kaniah himself. It's only on him. And so it's saying his son will not sit on the throne. That's what some people think. That's a possible answer. Other people say, well, Joseph here was, was uh, the son of Caniah. He's in that line, but he's not the actual father of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is virgin born. And so they'll say, maybe that's the answer. I actually think the answer is a little bit different. I think what happens is, is while God says, I take you off of my hand like a man removes his signet ring. I take you off of my hand. I think what actually happens when you read Haggai chapter 2, That that Kaniah's grandson, Zerubbabel, God says of him, I will make you like a signet ring because I have chosen you. God's actually saying, I'm putting the ring back on my hand. And so Jeconiah is so bad that God says, no one from your family can sit on the throne. But Zerubbabel comes along and he's so godly that God says, okay, I will restore the line of Christ, I will put that line back together so it will actually be able to sit on the throne of Israel. But do you see the progression here? Do you see how it begins with David the king? How does it end up? It ends up with Jeconiah, the weak and the godless, and the sins of Solomon, the idolatry that he introduced into Judah, impacts Judah through its entire line of kings, so that the line of Christ is moved away from the piety of David to the evil of these later kings. It's so bad. Folks, this is so wicked that there are people who, who look at the women that are mentioned here. And if you look at the women who are mentioned in this, in this lineage, in this genealogy, uh, all of them have, are tainted in some way, right? I mean, you've got, you've got Ruth. She's a Moabitess. You've got Rahab, the harlot. You've got Uriah's wife, right? And then even Mary. Mary, uh, the the Pharisees, while Jesus was in his earthly ministry, we find this in John, uh, the Pharisees are spreading the rumors that Mary was a godless young woman who got pregnant out of wedlock. That's what you actually have. All those women are tainted. Can I tell you something, friends? The women who are tainted here are nothing compared to the men. They are so much worse. And you read this story and realize this is what Solomon's line has led to. A family dominated by sin. Dominated by. It. Which leads me to my final point, letter B, under number three, the tolerance of sin leads to spiritual exile. It concludes of this line about the time they were taken away to Babylon. This story here, of course, we know it's five. It's in the 500s BC. Judah is attacked three times by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. He is the head of gold. He is probably the greatest ruler, earthly ruler that ever ruled. He, he is an amazing king. And, and in his first attack, he takes captive some of the young men of Israel, including a little boy named Daniel. In his second attack, he installs a vassal king to rule over Israel. And in his final attack, he just levels Jerusalem. And the thing that the Jewish people believed could never happen actually does. God takes his spirit away from the temple, the place that he loves, the place where he dwells. He leaves that place and he allows the nation's Uh, the Babylonians to come and attack it, and the temple itself is destroyed. It's wiped out. Completely gone. Now, this happens twice in Israel's history. This is the first time. It happens again in 70 AD. And that, of course, we believe is because of the fact the Jews murdered Jesus. God lets the Romans come in and level Jerusalem a second time. It's sacked. And the temple is destroyed again. For the second time, it has not yet been rebuilt in nearly 2,000 years. It has not yet been rebuilt. And all of this is because this is what sin does. It leads to spiritual exile. This is God's warning in Deuteronomy for breaking the covenant. You go to the, the blessings and cursings at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of this second law, what Deuteronomy means, a second law. And you read now this book of Deuteronomy, and you get to the end, and there's so much blessing here, and all the blessings that God will give. You'll plant, and it'll just grow. The seeds will grow, and you'll have fruit and agriculture in abundance, and you'll you'll have cities that you, you didn't even deserve to have, but they'll be built, and you didn't have to build them, and, and groves that were planted that you didn't plant that will, will burst forth with grapes, and you'll have animals that that we're not part of your flocks and all of these blessings until you turn away from God. And when you do that, God will curse the land and God will take away, the, and then you'll allow other nations to persecute you. But when you fully turn against him, he says, I will exile you to the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what happens. And the family of David is so... Decimated. The promised land is lost. The temple is destroyed. The people are captured and enslaved. And all of that happens, friends, when we tolerate sin in our lives. We just say it's not a big deal. Everybody's doing it. We use the same excuses with God that children use with their parents. You know, teens. Well, mom and dad, come on. Everybody in my class does it. And we say to God the same things. What Solomon tolerated became the norm for his children and grandchildren. And what was the norm for his children and grandchildren became the very reason that God destroyed them and the kingdom is lost. So that, Isaiah would say, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He will grow up as a tender plant as a root out of the dry ground. You get to Joseph, and he's just a tinker, a fix-it man. He, he, he'll fix your furniture, and he'll come in and maybe fix part of your house. and That's all he does. He's no king. <laughs> if Joseph had put on royal robes and marched around Jerusalem, people would have mocked him and said he was insane and that he was crazy. He's no king. But he's the line of David. He's the rightful heir. In fact, you think about this. David's family, Joseph, it's almost no more. And no one would confuse Joseph for being the rightful heir to the throne. And Herod would laugh at him if he tried to stand up against Herod. The Roman Empire ruled the land. And Jesus... He's so obscure, so insignificant, because sin had exiled his family into oblivion. This is what sin does. Friends, sin will lead you to failure. Sin will harm your testimony. Sin will destroy your family. And you look at that and you go, well, that's kind of the worst Christmas sermon I've ever heard. That's what makes the story of Jesus so great. Because this is in the, chronolo- the, the lineage, the chronology, the genealogy of Jesus. This story's here. For everyone who knows Jewish history, this story's here to be read. You can read your Old Testament and read it over and over and over again. And you get to the end of Second Chronicles and you go, you go, where is the king that was promised? And for... 400 years, Malachi writes, in 400 years, there's nothing. Blackness and darkness and war and famine and pestilence and disease and, and, and all of that on Israel and nothing. And then a little flicker, like a man striking a match in a cave, a little flicker of light. An angel appears to a little girl, a young lady, very young, 14, 15 years old maybe. And says to her, Blessed you are among women. The Holy Spirit, what is conceived of you is by his will, and you will be the mother of the king. And then the king comes. This is what we do at Christmas, folks. We celebrate the birth of a king, we celebrate the birth of our ruler. And here in the king's family line is a story of sin. How great then that his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the lessons we can learn from it. This this is not a fun sermon to preach for sure, but it's a truth that we must remember that even in the middle of this story, even as it gets so great and so happy and joyful later, right here in the middle of it is the bad news of what sin does. Help us to remember that. You're here this morning. Maybe there's some sin in your life you've been tolerating. It'll, Friends, it'll lead you to failure. It'll turn you away from God. It will send you off into spiritual exile. It'll hurt your family. If there's sin you're tolerating in your life, if you're a teenager, and you're tolerating sin, maybe you're a young adult here, and you're just you're just letting it live. You're letting it be there. You, you, you don't want other people to know it's there. You, you're kind of hiding it, but it's there, and you're just letting it be there. If you're here today, and you say, this is me. Pastor, I've been tolerating sin. It may not even be one that I covered, but you've been tolerating it. I'd love to pray for you. Would you say, Pastor, pray for me? Just raise your hand. And I'll pray for you. Yes, yes, yes. I will pray for you. Yes, I will pray for you. Yes, ma'am. I'll pray for you. Yes, sir. I'll pray for you. Anybody else, pastor, pray for me. I've been tolerating some sins in my life. Yes, I'll pray for you, young man. Thank you. Anybody else, pastor, pray for me. Lord, you see the hearts that are responding to your word. Help us, Lord, to respond to the word. That's the norm of the Christian life. We, we looked at that in the last hour. Help us to do that, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons that are here. Help us to gain comfort through the scriptures that we might have hope, that we don't have to live this way. We can turn from our sin and live like you want us to live. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a really quick hymn of invitation. You go to the Lord.